The Athletic. Hello, thank you so much for tuning in to this week's Zonal Marking podcast, a podcast brought to you by The Athletic. We like to tackle tactical, technical, analytical questions from within the world of football. We being myself, Ali Maxwell, and my co-hosts, Michael Cox and Tom Warville. Tom, how are you getting on this week? The sun's out. I feel like there's a, a bit of a spring in the step of the pod this time around. Yeah, doing well, thanks, Ali. thought you were going to make a uh, sun cream joke there, but you, you refrained, so... Good, good start. Not yet, not yet. Uh, Michael Cox joins us as well. Michael, how's your week going so far? Excited for uh, some Champions League action? Yeah, very much so. And also a very rare Monday 6pm game that was very exciting yesterday with Chelsea Everton. I enjoyed the novelty of that slot being a game I actually wanted to watch. <laughs> so uh, yeah, all well here. Thank you. Enjoying the first 10 games or so of the Thomas Tuchel reign at Chelsea? Yeah, I mean, they've been excellent. I mean, me and Tom put together a big piece... Um, when he joined, when I think we were very positive and maybe some people were a little bit surprised at that, but I don't think either of us would have expected it to go quite so well. I mean, the, the record of clean sheets is is remarkable. And I mean, not just the fact they're clean sheets, but they're not conceding a chance. I mean, I think I'm right in saying the last five league games, they've conceded like less than 0.6 XG of shots, which include games against Everton, Liverpool and Manchester United, mm. I think. So yeah, I, I think there's probably still more to come going forward. I mean, it's a bit of a Maybe a bit of a petty criticism, but I think the 1-0 wins over Liverpool and Spurs probably should have been much more convincing because you never know when you could concede a world-class goal or something. World-class goal? Can you say that? You can say a worldie, can't you, in a world-class goal? That's weird. You never know when you can concede a great long-range goal or something. Um, but yeah, I, I think they've been absolutely excellent. He's done a great job so far. Only Ferenc Pushkas himself can decide what is or isn't a world-class <laughs> goal. Um, guys, before we get into today's topic, and it's uh, it's something of an experiment today, something that we think will be quite good fun, certainly was good to, to prep and, and hopefully will come across well. That is very much in the balance at this stage, something new from us uh, later on. But just first, we had a message from David, a listener on Twitter. And A, I thought it was an interesting question that I wanted to put to you guys just to warm us up. But also, I'm really enjoying having listeners of the pod tweeting us with suggestions for full topics for a podcast or even just quickfire questions like this, which we can use at the top of a show to answer any queries that people have for either of you. And this is about Luke Shaw's goal on the weekend for Manchester United against City. He said, when is a counter-attack actually just a fast or direct break? A lot of people saying the Luke Shaw goal was a counter-attack, but Henderson had the ball for a while, and by the time he released, City were more or less in position. So the question to kick us off, to warm us up, Shaw's goal, Michael, counter-attack or no counter-attack? You can kind of see why someone might think it was, but David's got a point. Yeah, it's a really good question. I would say it's not a counter-attack. I think when you think about it, it's obviously not a counter-attack. But it did feel like a counter-attack because it was so direct. Had a direct dribble, obviously a very good forward pass from from Henderson. Actually a throw, wasn't it, from Henderson? So yeah, it's an interesting question. I'd be interested to know if Tom has any thoughts on, on how it's categorised. Because, I mean, there's a slightly different type of goal, but where teams actually kind of draw the press deliberately by passing it around close to their own goal and then really quickly break through the press. 
and, and launch a fast break. And that's another type of goal that feels like a counter-attack, but isn't really because you've had the ball for that entire period. So, yeah, we sometimes see stats about counter-attacking goals. I'm not sure whether that would qualify, Tom. Yeah, I, I don't think so. I think for the most ways that counter-attacks are recorded, it's usually by, um, like, subjectively, it's not based on rules or any model or anything like that. And I think that, I mean, the move starts with the ball in Henderson's hands, which feels like it's tough to start a counter from there. But, I mean, we have a definition that we use on the site for something called a direct attack, which is the ball's in your own half and it ends in a shot or a touch in the opposition box within 15 seconds. So this would definitely fall in as a direct attack. I thought the interesting thing was it with, with the goal was that City's shape wasn't that bad. It's just that Shaw kind of runs past Cancelo and he's he's caught out of position really and then from that they're very exposed on the on their right hand side but yeah for me not a counter but maybe a a fast a fast break which uh in data terms is a thing but maybe in, in football terms isn't brilliant piece of play by Shaw wasn't it not just to take that initial touch around Joao Cancelo but the way that he held off the midfielder while driving forward head up as well to see um, what might come next it was a very very well executed counter-attack and a good goal and exciting from an England, an England point of view as well. Luke Shaw's recent form. But a good question, David. Please, guys, do keep sending these in. I really like the idea of having these quick hits uh, at the start of a podcast. So don't hesitate to tweet us with any further questions for next week. But as for today's podcast, Michael, let's dive straight in. I need you to explain this one as best you can because it was very much your brainchild initially, one that I was uh, very excited about. We went to a podcast on uh, kind of unique players who have a very specific skill set or play unusual positions and we thought rather than just listing them we'd we'd form a starting 11 of them with a couple of subs as well so um yeah I've been thinking about some players that positionally I think are very strange and Tom has been looking at the numbers to uh to find some unusual players as well so uh yeah we've got uh, this is from the the major five european leagues and we've got quite interesting starting 11 coming up for you yeah a bunch of unicorns if you will in in what you've described as a slightly experimental formation so i'm looking forward to hearing about that i think the idea for me was to have this group of 11 players who do have unusual roles or skill sets but try where possible to put together a team that as you called it Michael could be vaguely workable I think as we've been doing it I've been a little keener um, to make this team work tactically than, than than maybe you you do keep reminding me that it's not a real team Ali we will not be playing any football matches with this football team so some things that I've taken seriously don't matter too much but Tom you've been taking this pretty seriously I know that because you told us earlier that last night you stayed up late creating a model of the most unique players in Europe how do you begin to build such a model. Yeah, that feels like the most stereotypical thing I could have possibly said. <laughs> but yeah, for, I, I feel I have taken quite unique FC to, <laughs> to heart and, and put a lot of uh, time and effort into this. Um, yeah, so when it comes to like unique footballers, I always find it quite an intriguing question of how you actually would look to, to measure that. So what I did is decided on a bunch of stats for each position. So for defenders, you know, you've got tackles per 90 interceptions, the number of times they make progressive passes or carries and aerial dual win rate and all that kind of good stuff uh, and have different groups of stats per position group. And what I do is I'll find um, who the most similar player is to every single player in Europe who's got 900 minutes in each position. And you can create a, a measure for 
distance uh, and a measure for how similar two players are. So let's take us three as an example. So Ali and Michael, probably similar-ish height, similar, both have black hair. So you guys are probably, in the model's eyes, quite similar. Whereas you add me to the equation, who's tall, pretty lanky, ginger hair, does data stuff, and I'm I'm less similar to you guys. <laughs> and the, what I'm looking for in the model is the, the player or the, the person in this situation who is the least similar to all the other players in the data set. And from that, we can find which player per position is is unique in that sense, in that the way that the player they're most similar to, they're not really similar to at all. Mm. Interesting. I like that you decided to compare us based on physical factors. I think personality-wise, Tom, I think me and you would be a, a much closer match than maybe me and the curmudgeon, Michael Cox, famous, <laughs> famous Twitter curmudgeon. But um, let's just start with the goalkeeper of our team here quite unique FC as you've called it there a nice reference to a few weeks ago where I told off Michael for using that phrase of course anyone who knows what the word unique means knows that you're either unique or you're not there's not really any middle ground but this team is called quite unique FC and in goal Tom we've gone with a very famous and very well decorated goalkeeper Pepe Reina yeah we went for Pepe Reina because I think we wanted you were saying at the start Ali that you were kind of banging the drum on we maybe need some players that make a bit of tactical sense. And we've gone for a player who at the back is really comfortable with their feet as as bags of experience, which whether it, you need that or not in a completely hypothetical football team, I, I don't know. Um, and also as a decent shot stopper as well. And Pepe Reina kind of ticks most of those boxes, really. He's, he's in the 97th percentile for passes in open play with 33 per 90, which is more than, I mean, it's going to be more than some outfielders in some teams in, in Europe. Um, and he's also in the you know 80th percentile plus for goals conceded versus post-shot XG and how well he's he's saved um, the attempts that he's faced this season versus the average keeper. So I think those two things and the fact that he's a, a you know quote-unquote good lad means that he's a, a decent pick between the sticks. That's the understatement of the century, by the way, Pepe Reina being a good lad. I mean, he's... He's the greatest cheerleader that modern football's ever seen. You just just ask any member of the Spain team between 2008 and 2012, and they'll uh, they'll certainly agree with that. I was delighted to see we had Pepe Reina still doing the business at 38 years old, uh, in between the sticks for us for quite unique FC uh, at right back. I was surprised by this pick, but you both liked it a lot. Uh, Michael, tell me why Aaron Wan-Bissaka makes our team as the right back. Well, I suppose he's unusual because he's such a throwback. I mean, we, we think of, of typical fullbacks now as being overlappers and very speedy, good at crossing. And now there's been a movement towards, you know, Yijao Cancelos, players who are drifting inside into midfield. But Wan-Bissaka, I mean, I can't think of any other young fullbacks who would cost £50 million who are just defenders first and foremost, and are really trying to learn the attacking side of the game. It seems really rare now. And we saw at the weekend against Raheem Sterling that actually that play, that type of player can be really valuable in certain situations. Um, and then I had a further look at the stats, and I mean, I was using FB Ref here, which has stats on well, loads of leagues, but I narrowed it down to the, the top five leagues in Europe. And the numbers in terms of blocks are really interesting. So this is either shots or passes or cross that are blocked by a player. And Juan Bissaka just streets ahead of everyone else in Europe. He's made 93 blocks uh, this season. No one else is on more than 69. So it's, I mean, he's just miles ahead of everyone else. I think that speaks to the fact he's just, I mean, it was said about him almost from the outset when he when he first started playing in the Premier League for Crystal Palace, but he's a really, really good one-on-one defender. 
I think, probably the best around at the moment. And that shows it's not all about getting tackles. Sometimes you can just get your body in the way. That said, he has most. He has made the most tackles in the league. <laughs> but despite that, he's only got one booking all season. Amazing. So when he does make tackles, he's you know he's not doing him blat- You know he's not fouling blatantly enough that he gets a, a card. So yeah, I, I, you know probably fifteen years ago, this is not the type of player you would have had in this eleven because this is what fullbacks used to be. But like I said, I really don't think there are many fullbacks around like him. Uh, anymore and I think he is improving the attacking side of his game as well we saw that he scored a really good goal against Newcastle his, his crossing at times is okay but he is a, an old school fullback and that is very rare at the moment. Tom I know that previously on this podcast you've told us that just looking at the tackles number can be a little noisy can be a little misleading and, and you've got a way of finding out really how good someone is at tackling more so than just volume true tackle win rate I believe you call it. And Aaron Wambasaka comes up trumps there as well. Yeah, definitely. It kind of passes the eye test that Michael's saying that he's only got one booking all season. Um, and what true tackle win rate looks to to find out is how often a player wins a tackle cleanly and either isn't kind of shrugged off the ball, which you see Fred and Andre Gomez are so much or so often, and they don't commit fouls when they're looking to make tackles. So he's second in this this metric, winning 77% of his, his tackle attempts. He's pipped to the post just by Seamus Coleman this season, which I find quite... Uh, quite interesting, maybe quite unexpected. But yeah, when this season with Aaron Wamsaka as well, like he he's tackling or needing to tackle a lot less than last season. He's not even in the top ten for for fullbacks in terms of tackle attempts or those that are adjusted for possession as well. So that makes me think that there's an air of gravity about his game, and and clubs aren't looking to go near him really because they know that he's just gonna he's gonna put a stop to any attack that they're looking to to build down Manchester United's right hand side. I mean, the the defensive qualities are completely undeniable at this point eye test or data wise Michael just to go back to the attacking side of his game how much is that an issue if you are a club that wants to challenge both for the Premier League title and deep into Europe I mean you've told us so often in the last year or so on this podcast about how insane Trent Alexander-Arnold's numbers are for example going forward and how he is redefine the position in a certain sense for this Liverpool side it feels like if we had done this team 18 months ago we might have said Trent Alexander-Arnold is playing a crazy fullback role uh, and now we're almost picking the polar opposite of Alexander-Arnold it's it's such a fascinating question right especially because they're kind of vying for England spots as well yeah that is very true I mean I think the issue with Juan Bissaka really at Manchester United is going forward the position they don't have sorted is on the right I mean, it's either Greenwood there, who I think probably wants to end up as a centre-forward, or it's Daniel James, who's a decent enough player, but in certain situations, he uh, he doesn't really influence the game and and get enough goals and assists probably to be a regular for Manchester United. So at times, they just don't really have any threat down the right, and I think that is an issue. But if they were to bring in a real goal scorer on the right flank, um, I don't think it would be as much of an issue if they had a, a solid fullback behind him. I think maybe of something like when Azpilicueta was playing left-back behind Hazard. I mean, Hazard was, his output was so good that you could afford to have someone solid there. So I think that, you know, Manchester United obviously want to get a right winger in. They've always been linked with Sancho or whoever. But yeah, I'm not sure that is, is necessarily Wan-Bissaka's fault. And I think that, especially with Shaw uh, in such good form on the other flank, you can afford to have a solid fullback 
uh, on the right. Tom, our first centre-back, someone who's getting a lot of love recently in the Premier League. Yeah, we went for Esri Concert, who in my, I guess, weird footballer model doesn't really stick out too much as, a, as an odd profile. I guess he's odd just in the way that he never really looks to tackle. Um, and he, he loves kind of blocking shots instead. So um, just looking at the stats here, I think out of 56 centre-backs in the league this season, he's 52nd for block passes and interceptions and 55th out of 56 for true tackle attempts which wow. are adjusted for possession. So he's very much a reactive instead of a proactive defender. And his most similar players, or the players he's most similar to are a list of more kind of, I guess, meat and potatoes guys. Gary Cahill for one and Scott Dan and Angelo Ogbonna as well, um, which none of them seem very flashy, very sexy centre-back names. But then Konza now is, you know, is thought of as um, a more, you know, I guess he's not really a modern defender, but he's just definitely a very good young one. It's quite, um, it's quite impressive for him to stand out and to be getting so many plaudits as well, because it feels like, I don't know if it's a, an unconscious bias, but it feels like front foot defenders those who win their duels and who who step out and win the ball and will dominate physically, it's probably easier for them to stand out to the casual fan than it is someone like Konza, who might take a slightly more measured approach. Yeah, I definitely think that's the case. I mean, Ruben Diaz has got a ton of plaudits this season, I think probably rightly so, but he does far more noticeable defending than previous Man City centre-backs that we've seen. And the same with Konza. I think you don't realise Konza's there until he's throwing himself at a block. And maybe those are the things that that stick with us um, for a bit longer instead of the maybe the more quiet defenders who are just jockeying and, and shuffling across and not really doing any active stuff that you pick up unless you're specifically watching them. But when he is called into action, I mean, Konza's been really, really good one-on-one. I think he's rated really highly in terms of being dribbled past. And that true tackle win rate we mentioned earlier, I think he is he's winning 80% of his tackles. So he's very, very clean as well. So all round, just, you know, you've got um, Wambasaka uh, on one side is very active down the flank for us. Then you've got Konza, who's just going to be more of a, a shot suppressor in the box, really. Does he do much on the ball, Konza? Yeah, on the ball, he, again, I think that more of that falls to Tyro Mings at Villa. Konza's rarely passing. I think he's making 35 passes on average per 90, which, again, out of that 56 centre-back group, he's, he's rated 51st. Um, and I think he's rock bottom in the Premier League for progressive passes. So, so far at Villa, he's not really shown a lot of, of aptitude on the ball. And maybe that's just down to Dean Smith and John Terry working with him and just saying, like, look, this is your role. These are things you have to do and that you're you're good at. And yeah, I, th- I think it'd probably be more of the same for um, quite unique FC. Well, we wouldn't be quite unique FC without some sort of ball-playing centre-back. We need someone to compliment Konza, who, uh, as far as I can tell, is going to jockey and jockey and jockey all the way to our own penalty box and then make a block and then we'll probably pass it sideways to the other centre back who have we picked to then move the ball forward out of defence? We've gone for Takahiro Tomiyasu who plays for Bologna I mean he's extremely versatile at the back he's played right back, left back and centre back this season, He is super comfortable on both feet, I think he's used his weak foot a third of the time which if you think of, I mean having you know, when we do play five a side I think I'd probably use my weak foot for a pass maybe one in a thousand passes so that is... <laughs> That's pretty good. Ali's <laughs> drinking water there and then he spat it out. Um, and yeah, in terms of on the ball as well, he's he's super comfortable progressively passing it forwards, kind of breaking lines. He makes 4.4 of those per 90 and that's in the, the 80th percentile. And he carries the ball out of the back as well. Um, so he's a good size. He's someone who could probably um, overlap with our left back at times. And yeah, I just think it's nice to have a, a ball playing centre-back alongside someone like Konzu who's a bit more reactive. Yeah, that's a really nice blend. So we've got 
back four of Wan-Bissaka, Ezri Konza, Takahiro Tomiyasu. And it was clear that we weren't going to excite the fans, I think, without at least one fullback who can really drive the team forward and, and have an impact in the final third, maybe a little more frequently than Wan-Bissaka. Tom, again, you came up trumps here. Yeah, so again, I was looking at the data on, on FB Ref and we found Max Mittelstadt, who plays for Hertha Berlin. So he's a 23-year-old fullback, played quite a lot of games in the season. I think he started 21 games. Uh, and looking at the data across all all defenders, I mean, he comes up trumps for progressive passes, carries, dribbles, tackles and interceptions. And the only three players who had all those stats in the 80th percentile or higher were Joao Cancelo or Rhys James. So he's very... He seemingly has the profile of this kind of all-action fullback, even though he's someone who's got two assists and no goals this season. So maybe he doesn't have that that flashy attacking output, but um, he he plays in a way that's going to add some value for us on the uh, the left side of defence. Well, I for one am delighted that you spent your Monday evening with a model because we've already in five players we've got someone playing in Serie A. We've got two Premier League players, uh, two from Serie A, I should say. Uh, and Mittelstadt as well now uh, of Hertha Berlin. Now, if it feels like Warville was mostly responsible for the defence, that's because the diva, Michael Cox, had such strong opinions about the midfield of quite unique FC that no one else was really allowed to go near it. Uh, Coxie, we are playing a 4-3-3 of sorts, so who's at the base of our midfield three? Yeah, I don't care about defenders. (laughs) They're just not very interesting in my opinion. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, the defensive midfielder... It's someone who is associated with being very much a defensive midfielder. But actually, when you watch Casemiro play for Real Madrid this season, he's taken on a very unusual role under Zidane. So we all know him. He used to be a pure defensive midfielder. Then he became a defensive midfielder who contributed a bit more going forward. But this season, I don't know whether it's because of the lack of attacking midfielders at Real Madrid, you know, partly because of injury, whether it's because Kroos and Modric are less mobile, but... He's played as the deepest midfielder when Real Madrid are defending and then pushed forward to become really the most advanced one when they have the ball. I wouldn't really call it just a standard box-to-box midfielder. It's not like he's Thomas Suchek. It's like the, the triangle is kind of flipping both ways and, and Modric and Cruz tend to kind of drop deep and build up play from deep as, of course, they, they're very good at doing. Um, and Casemiro is storming into the box. I mean, he did it really well at the weekend. He played a 1-2 with Benzema um, for Benzema to score very crucial equaliser in the derby um, and the weekend probably keeps Real Madrid in, in the title race. And I just can't really remember a player playing that kind of role before. It's probably the most interesting thing, uh, interesting thing Zidane has done as a manager. I mean, obviously very successful manager, three European Cups, but from my perspective as someone who writes about the tactics, it's not been particularly fascinating to cover. But there's been a couple of things. I mean, there's I think I spoke before in this podcast about a thing they did um, a few weeks ago with uh, with Marcelo kind of playing left back and drifting into midfield and then Mendy being the left-sided centre-back and overlapping. So that was quite interesting. But, you know, you see that at some other clubs. I haven't really seen this kind of Casemiro role over clubs. So, yeah, not sure quite whether it has a name or whether we need to come up with a name or whatever. But, uh, yeah, he's a defensive midfielder without the ball and he's the most advanced midfielder with the ball. Um, so that's why he's in the team. I like that a lot. He will fit well with our two eights are two shuttlers if you will tell me about Nicolo Barella who's playing on the right side of our midfield three why is he part of quite unique FC yeah so my choices are very much more mainstream than Tom's uh, Barella like one of the key players for <laughs> the probable title winners in Serie A um, again I just it's I just think it's a really unusual role I mean Conte's Inter are basically 3-5-2 
But it's quite unusual in midfield. So they've got Brozovic, who's the, the holding midfielder, who plays pretty much as you'd expect. Then in recent weeks, it's been Christian Eriksen, who plays just to his left. Um, but Eriksen isn't really... I mean, he's playing a lot deeper than he was at Spurs. They're almost like a double pivot together. And then to the right, you have Barella, who, because of the position of those two, has this freedom to stay very high, very wide on the right. A little bit Kevin De Bruyne-esque, but I think it's quite different because he's in more of a counter-attacking side. I think Inter at their best when they play on the break. And he's often exploiting the space that Lukaku creates with his movement. Lukaku's usually playing as a right-sided forward. And then on top of that, you have Hakimi, who's probably been the best fullback or wingback in Serie A this season on the right, who actually often drifts inside to play in that channel and often makes kind of diagonal movements to link up with Lukaku himself. So you end up with Barella playing out on the right. He's also very good at making the kind of classic third man runs you see in a Conte team where Martinez and, and Lukaku will combine and he'll go in behind. Um, and I think in, in a couple of big games this season, probably in the Milan derby and um, against Juventus as well, he was just the best player on the pitch. So it's not just he's the fact he's playing an unusual role. I think he's been a really, really crucial player. And in Italy, I mean, we spoke before, I think last week about wingers and how, you know, the Dutch always create good wingers and the Portuguese often do. Italians don't really. It's tough to think of a real world-class Italian winger. And they have this phrase mezzala, which basically means half winger. And I think, you know, Barella is probably a good candidate for that role. Um, and I think has been one of the outstanding players in Europe this season. And it's one of those players I'm looking forward to seeing at the Euros in particular, because obviously didn't see Italy at a major tournament what, three years ago now. And uh, I just think he's the kind of player who could have a, a storming tournament. So yeah, he's uh, he's playing right centre midfield, I suppose, but drifting very wide. Yeah, I think um, Burrell is a, a great name. And if we look at the the kind of similar players model that I've devised, his, his most similar player, the, I guess the doppelganger for um, Barella is David Silva this season at Real Sociedad. So a lot of the things that Silva does in terms of getting into the box, linking play, um, still able to kind of beat a player, those are the things that Barella also shows up for in the stats as well. So um, yeah, I'd like to think Coxie's on earth the next uh, David Silva there potentially. Nice. And I'm pleased because my potentially overblown concern that our right side with Wambasaka, with all due respect, might be the place where attacks go to die. Turns out with Barella operating in, in quite a wide central midfield role, we should be able to um, space the pitch quite well and, and um, find Barella in dangerous areas. So we wait and see who the right winger is who might profit from that. But the left central midfielder, I mean, you said Barella's a great name, Tom. Not many better than Weston McKenney the USA international who plays for Andrea Pirlo's Juventus and actually was a joint pick. Both of you separately of each other put forward McKenney. So I'm giving him the armband here. He's the double unicorn. Why, Tom and Michael, do we like Weston McKenney so much for this team? I mean, he's uh, Juventus have been playing a really unusual system this year under Pirlo, kind of back five that becomes a back four and vice versa. And part of that is one of the... Um, Wingbacks often kind of drifts inside to become a number 10. Um, and McKenney has been one of the players who, who's done that very well. He's just a player who he seems capable of playing everywhere. And I think Pirlo has found a role where he can play pretty much everywhere. He's, he's actually quite interesting when he talks about his, his own game, uh, McKenney, because there was an interview where he said, uh, one of my weaknesses is having the tactical discipline to stay in one position. When you get to the highest level, that's really important. You don't need to run 80 yards. It's about playing smart, which I think is obviously very true, but 
he's also, <laughs> you know, he's very honest about his own weakness. But I think Pirlo has found a role where, yeah, he can pop up a, a little bit of everywhere. Yeah, I mean, for Juve this season, we've seen that. I'm just looking at the the graph we've got in our notes here, which is also in a piece that um, went up on the site today on, on McKenney. And he's played, I mean, defensive midfielder, central midfielder. He's played on the right and he's played on the left. So extremely positionally versatile. And I think that if you looked at the players who've who shared minutes across like a, a bunch of different positions um, and having a lot of minutes in each, I think he's probably the most tactically diverse player in Europe right now, um, or at least in a, in a positional sense. Um, and even from this kind of similar players model as well, he's he's the second weirdest, I guess, in terms of how close his uh, his next similar player is. The one above him is uh, is Maxim Lopez, who plays for Sassuolo. His his doppelganger is Curtis Jones at Liverpool, but I think McKinney is arguably more interesting because the way that he's actually played loads of different positions. Whereas uh, I think that Lopez is uh, it's more his his role, the things that he's has to do are, are slightly different. But um, yeah, I'm a big I don't know fan of of McKinney. I think he's he's an interesting player. I think it's always fun watching players that can be so positionally diverse, and he's adding to his game. I mean, we see that he's getting into the box a lot more this season. He scored four goals, which is a uh, career high for him and yeah he's just settled really well into Perlo's system for coming from a, a Schalke side which are now I guess marooned to the bottom of the Bundesliga table there's so many fascinating aspects to him you've just called him the most tactically diverse player in Europe but not only that his, his journey's been fascinating as well and as you say to move from a Schalke side that are almost historically bad if you look at last season and this season to move to Juventus under Pirlo and to have that versatility which he was already known for almost count against him in how people think of McKenney or certain people have it's almost worked against him because people maybe don't see the qualities that he has and more just see him as this Swiss army knife but clearly Andrea Pirlo is massively appreciating McKenney's skill set and as you say he's, he's been a real goal threat as well this season for Juve so he's got the armband basically because you both wanted him in this side um, very helpful to have someone so versatile in our team it means that with Coxie in charge we'd be switching up tactically left right and centre um, we've got a lot of very versatile players on our bench as well to allow us to do a load of funky tactical things in our hypothetical matches um, but there has been as you referred uh, to an amazing piece on McKenney and his career his story um, great quotes from him in there as well from Paul Tenorio uh, on The Athletic this week I would recommend that you go and check that out because McKenney, uh, a fascinating player and a, a really interesting guy as well. Theathletic.com forward slash zonal marking to sign up for an annual subscription. You'll pay th- just £3.99 for the first six months if you follow that link. Check out that piece on McKenney by Paul Tenorio. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Okay, so we've just got a front three to work with here. Just a reminder for those not taking notes, we've got Pepe Reina in goal, uh, who gets it, passes it, saves it cheerleader as well, the experienced member of the side. Back four of Juan Bissaka, uh, Ezri Konza, Takahiro, Tomiyasu and Maximilian Mittelstadt. A midfield three of Casemiro, Nicolo Barella and Weston McKenney just rotating all over the pitch, that lot. Uh, our front three now, Michael. Uh, on the left side of it, we've got a player that 
to be honest, as someone who doesn't follow Serie A as closely as you lot, this is someone whose name pops up all the time. Seems to be a very, very popular player for the neutral. Rodrigo de Paul. Yeah, well, I mean, you wanted to make it very tactically balanced. So with Middlestat overlapping on the left and playing a very prominent role, we needed someone who would cut inside. And I must say, in general, I've kind of picked my players based upon you know, watching games and writing down movements and that kind of thing. And Tom's been obviously on the stats. But this is one where I've just, his stats really stand out to me. Um, and my favourite one really is the fact that so far this season, he's had 56 shots, of which 55 have come with his right foot. <laughs> um, and that's the kind of player I can very much relate to. I mean, I think of players, particularly young players coming through, is incredibly two-footed. I think of, you know, Mason Greenwood and Bukayo Saka, too, I've watched this season. And, you know, at times wondered which foot they prefer. DePaul is obviously the, the complete opposite of that. And the other interesting thing about him is he's got a really, really high dribble percentage in terms of success rate, I mean. So he's uh, in the major five leagues, in terms of most dribbles attempted, he's in ninth position. If you take the average success rate of the other nine in that top 10, it's 58%. But DePaul's on 81%, which is just miles ahead of them. And and like I say, he's, you know, this isn't from a small sample size. He's the ninth uh, most prolific dribbler in terms of attempts in Europe. So he's, a, I mean, a good player to watch. You know, Tom always uses the phrase, the eye test. And I mean, this, this one certainly passes the eye test for me because he's very, very exciting whenever he gets on the ball. I'm massively intrigued how he can be so good and so prolific for Udinese and yet has played 21 times for Argentina and not scored a goal. I'm fascinated by that. But yeah, he, he's a really interesting player. He's always been linked with, you know, bigger clubs. And I'm always reluctant to kind of talk too much about players in terms of transfers, but Udinese are a selling club. They've always been a selling club and he is a player who I expect will get a big move at some point. We're looking at a player playing off the left, elite ball carrier, goal threat, creative, playing for a club outside of his country's elite. And we're not talking about Jack Grealish, but we might as well be, <laughs> Tom. Surely the model thinks that Grealish and Rodrigo de Paul are a half-decent match. Yeah, I think I've probably got to go back to the, the drawing board here. We'll uh, see what the, the inner workings are saying, because that's that's not the case. But um, de Paul definitely is similar to a lot of the, the more premier attacking players in Europe, though. Got Luis Alberto at Lazio, um, Gonzalo Castro at Stuttgart, which is an interesting one. And then the other three of Angel Di Maria, James Rodriguez and Hakan Chalnoglu. Um, all kind of show that he's he's one of these more uh, these players who cut inside can both create and score um, and yeah I think that's a, a pretty good list to be um, compared with so I think DePaul was someone who was really um, closely linked with Leeds last summer and you can maybe see that um, you know he's a definite upgrade on uh, on Helder Costa at least on the uh, on the wing so one to keep an eye on for sure but um, someone who yeah you, you'd maybe like to see tested at a slightly higher level than uh, Udinese um, with no no disrespect to them. Uh, on the right side of our front three Michael a, a pick that caused a bit of controversy in the group chat uh, I was hoping for to be honest a pure goal scorer in this slot in in what I considered to be the selection that would have made this team more well-balanced, um, but you've picked someone who plays for Atletico Madrid, who, to be fair, is absolutely a tactical unicorn. Yeah, I think this is probably my, my favourite player for this criteria, this end of the team. I mean, Marcos Llorente has just undergone a massive positional transformation. Uh, when he was at Real Madrid, he was regarded as a defensive midfielder or a deep playmaker, central midfielder, whatever you want to call him, but one of those typical Spanish midfielders, authoritative in possession, patient with his distribution, 
Um, and he didn't get much of a look in at Real, so he switched to the other side of the city, to Atleti. Um, and initially was bought as a kind of player who, you know, I think was was famed for his, his kind of uh, regaining possession. He did that very well when he was at Alaves on loan from Real, I should say. Um, but he gradually got moved higher up the pitch until he became basically a goal-scoring number 10. Um, and then on top of that, he was used as a basically a right winger, a right midfielder, which you would never have expected based upon you know, what we thought of him when he went to Atletico Madrid. And you know, now we see his, his running ability, his physicality, the timing of his runs. And he's a goal scorer. I mean, he, he scored two goals at Anfield last year in what I think of as basically the last real classic game before the, you know, behind closed doors era. It was just a brilliant European Cup tie. And yeah, he's just a player I've really enjoyed watching. He's, he's played a bit more uh, wing back this season because of the change in system uh, that Simeone has, has, uh, has undergone with, with Atleti. But he's a really interesting player. And I've got some quite bizarre information about him involving family members. So I'll, I'll let you choose, Ali. Would you like to hear about his mum or about his dad? I would like to hear about Senora Llorente, his mother. Well, she uh, got a dog last year, <laughs> roughly this time last year, and she was so delighted with Llorente's performance, scoring twice away at Liverpool, that uh, she named the dog Anfield. Ah, nice. That's nice. Which I quite like. What about his dad? Um, well, I mean, his family is quite interesting because both his dad, Paco Llorente, uh, and his great-uncle legendary Francisco Hinto both played for Real Madrid and both were wingers so maybe there's something in the blood that you know he should have realized he was a winger but he was talking about uh sorry his dad was talking about the reasons for his for Llorente's good form and he said uh he sleeps nine hours a day uh but not in any normal bed in an intelligent bed <laughs> which takes the <laughs> which takes the electromagnetic contamination out of the air whatever that means it's said to reduce your biological age by 15 years, which would make him 10 at the moment. <laughs> so, I mean, <laughs> for a 10-year-old, for a he's having a, a really fine couple of seasons. Tom, this guy's absolutely unbelievable, isn't he? Because I must admit, I was thinking it, doesn't, it didn't feel right to have him as essentially a right winger in a 4-3-3 system. And yet, you look at his numbers this season, despite the, the, the positions he's been playing... Eight goals and eight assists in La Liga and also ranks very highly for things like pressures and tackles as well. This is an unbelievable player to have in the final third for our team. I feel like me coming in with the stats here is probably akin to Llorente's bed taking the electromagnetic currents out of the air. But um, <laughs> he's got eight goals and assists, but combined he's got five XG and XA overall. So he's he's massively overperforming on his numbers. So the uh, the scouting side of me says that he's running a bit hot and maybe isn't as good as um, as we think. But given the bed and given the the Benjamin Button qualities, I think he's a great long term signing for the club. I mean, quite implausibly, I've also got a fact, a piece of trivia about an Atletico Madrid player and Anfield, the football stadium, because did you know that Luis Suarez named his daughter? Delfina, which sounds like a lovely Uruguayan girl's name, also an anagram of Anfield. So quite smart, quite smart when you think about it. Um, so there you go, as if we needed anything like that. Michael's looking confused. Hard to hard to work out anagrams as we record a pod, but 
Have a look later. You'll see that that's absolutely right. Delfina Suarez, uh, very much an anagram of Anfield there. Right, up top. We did a whole podcast last week, guys, on attackers, strikers, forwards. We talked about all the different types of striker that you can have in 2021 and which ones are best for you know, the very top teams, what you need to have, the full pizza, as we called it. Um, and Michael, instead, you've picked Sasha Kalajic of Stuttgart, who, as far as I can tell, is one of the tallest strikers around. <laughs> yeah, he's he's two metres tall, 6.7. Sorry, six foot seven in old money, which really takes you into the realms of, you know, if this was a tabloid newspaper, we'd be kind of mocking up a graphic with a kind of, you know two meter rule wouldn't we i mean peter crouch is two meters and one centimeter nicholas zigic is uh, two meters and two centimeters so he's right up there i must say i wasn't really aware of him until about a month or two ago i just don't think i'd really heard his name and then you can't really avoid him because he scored seven goals in his last six games you'll be shocked to know that four of them were headers um and he's yeah sure enough he's scored now, the most headers in Europe this season, he's got six. The thing I quite like about him is he's relatively like elegant for a kind of really tall player. I mean, I'm, I'm desperately trying to avoid saying he's got big feet, a good feet for a big man. <laughs> but he's left-footed as well. And I always just think, you know, a left-footed player, there's just an extra kind of sense of artistry, of, you know, beauty when they kick the ball. So to have someone that's two metres tall and basically, a you know, a target man, but actually he's got a really good left foot. I just think he's... he's quite unusual to watch um you know i don't know whether this is just a hot streak or not trouble for him is he's being linked to west ham so that would obviously uh, end his prolific streak as soon as he moved but yeah he's, he's a player who like i say he's only come into my uh, attention the last couple of months but uh he's, he's having a bit of a baz dost couple of months if i can use that you almost said big feet for a good man which is now <laughs> way I think that's way better than good feet for a big man. Um, he's certainly a big man, isn't he, Tom? Uh, one of the biggest. And I'm still slightly reeling that we've got Kalajic leading our line. But, uh, you know, we're looking at unicorns here and he certainly is one of those. Yeah, he's definitely a unicorn. Um, again, looking at his most similar players, we've got Yusuf Paulson at Leipzig and, and Ollie Watkins at Villa. So I don't think it's quite picking up the, the physical traits of, of these sorts of players. I mean, Paulson maybe has a bit of a similar profile, but Watkins is, is super fast, has really good acceleration um, and is a, a great presser. Um, and also um, Kalecic is he's, uh, outperforming his XG as well. So 12 goals from 6.6 XG. So I'm slightly worried we're um we're signing players on the basis of um perf- you know results and not performances but uh i got faith in uh, faith in the manager to to kind of turn it around i love that we we barely have anyone that crosses the ball um we've just decided to choose the tallest striker in europe uh, let's just run through the starting 11 and then we've got a couple of bench players who are going to come on and uh, uh, and and allow us to adapt our situation depending on the opposition and the game state we've got pepe reina in goal we've got wambisaka konza tomiyasu and mittelstadt in the back four, we've got a midfield three of Casemiro, Barella and McKenney, and a front three of Rodrigo de Paul, Marcos Llorente and Sasha Kalajic of Stuttgart. Uh, it's certainly a team of unicorns. I have taken it upon myself to appoint the manager and it has to be Marcelo Bielsa. And I do actually think, looking at the way his Leeds team is set up, that this group of players would fit that relatively well. I think we've got a lot of very 
impressively versatile players with good physical qualities, a lot of strong defenders, I think, which would lend itself to his man-to-man marking system in open play, uh, and a lot of dynamism as well, as well as, clearly, a lot of very versatile players who can adapt to uh, to different roles. So Bielsa's definitely in charge of this side. And then just run through a couple of substitutes for me, guys, uh, all of them from the Premier League, which is kind of underrepresented. We've got two Bundesliga players, two Premier League players, two La Liga and five from Serie A uh, in the starting eleven. But in the Prem, it, it felt like Connor Cody should be in a team like this because of the role he plays, Michael. But I don't think if you're making any attempt to make it work tactically, you can put him in a back four in good faith because we've basically never seen him play in a back four before. I love the use of in good faith to describe, you know, this make-believe. I te- you're, I, you're being very as, strict with the tactics, which I very as much As soon as you told me your idea, I realised this was something that I was going to take far too seriously. And to be honest, <laughs> I've got so little else going on at the moment that I, I'm not angry about it. And I won't have you mocking me for it. Well, that's absolutely fine. I, yeah, I can't, I, I can't laugh either taking tactics too seriously, <laughs> I suppose. But yeah, I mean... It, Cody is, I mean, even if you just watch him, he's he's so unusual. He's almost like an old school sweeper, I would say. And and when um, when Nuno has experimented with a back four at times this season, Cody just does look uncomfortable, doesn't he? Um, and, and looking at the stats as well, I mean, those of us like me and Tom who, who use this site, FB Ref, quite a lot, we've mentioned it a couple of times already. They've got this new kind of um, almost dashboard, I guess, showing you know which players are aware compared to equivalents in their positions in terms of the percentile of what they do. And I mean, Cody just, from the stats, he almost doesn't do anything. I mean, he's, he's really low in tackles, really low in pressures, really low in interceptions, really, really low in aerials. And even in terms of his passing metrics, he's not that outstanding. He's not as much of a ball-playing centre-back as you would think. But he is, I mean, he plays that really well. That The team is almost built for him. And he plays with two centre-backs who do most of the defensive work. And he just has the, the kind of mopping up job. And he plays that very intelligently. But yeah, I can't really think of a, an equivalent player like him. I think he's quite unique. Quite unique. Again, quite unique FC. But he's on the bench for us. Um, Tom, almost improbably, we didn't have a Leeds United player in our first eleven, But we've got two on the bench partly because Bielsa's the manager, but also because in Stuart Dallas and also in Calvin Phillips, you've got a couple of players who who really do have fairly specific and unique roles. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, with Dallas, we've got someone who can probably play on the right or the left um, or in in central midfield as one of those, um, I guess, free eights or even in Casemiro's role. So again, someone who's um, extremely versatile. And then Phillips um, drops in and is a really good distributor from deep um, and someone who I think can can set the tempo for this this side as well. Um, I do like, Ali, that you've taken it on yourself to ensure we hit the homegrown quota. In yeah, that. important. Not, yeah, exactly. Um, but I do feel a bit guilty that we've not got a single player from, from League 1 in there as well. Um, maybe one for one for the transfer window, which we have to focus on. But, um, wow. That's, I, w- I would actually like, Michael, at some point to weigh in on what we consider to be the big five European leagues. Because sometimes I wonder if France being number five is correct. You know, you've got strong teams in the Portuguese league. I like watching the Eredivisie as well. It, it does feel sometimes like there's a bit of a drop-off between number four and number five, and France maybe, you know, benefits from that. Yeah, you're right. I mean, the, the, there was a coefficient battle for fifth place a few years back that I think 
Liga and is taken away from Portugal, mainly through PSG, of course. But I tend to agree. I think sometimes the coefficient is... I mean, this is probably a separate pod we can do if anyone really cares about the coefficient as much as me. But yeah, when it, when a coefficient is so dominated by one team from a country, I basically feel like it's cheating. So I kind of agree with you. I think uncharacteristically, I might disagree with Michael there a little bit because it feels like Monaco and Lille are really pushing PSG for the title this year. Um, but yeah, I agree. It's another, it's a pod. It's maybe even an article on kind of what is the true top five European leagues if we were to do kind of a our own attempt at um, creating the the coefficient for that. But back to more to more pressing matters. Um, the rest of the bench we have Bobby Decod over Reed who. Um, extremely weird positionally this season. I remember we were talking last week and he was in the list of, of second strikers in the Premier League and um, had quite a few minutes there. Um, he's also played at, at right wing back and I think he was playing at wing back when he scored against um, Liverpool recently. And yeah, just someone who doesn't really strike me as someone who originally is is Premier League quality, but in recent weeks has really shown that and also shown that he's a, a favourite of Scott Parker, who himself is quite a, a pragmatic manager. Been an interesting one to follow over the last few years with my EFL hat on because it doesn't happen very often what happened to Bobby Reid. He he came through at Bristol City, his boyhood club. He was a central midfielder, a number eight. I would say, without meaning to be harsh, fairly nondescript. Like, did everything quite well, but I I didn't consider him one of the premier goal-scoring central midfielders, for example, in the championship. And then one summer the rumours started trickling in and there's quite the EFL rumour mill, guys, that you won't know about. The rumours were trickling in that Bobby Reid, as he was known then, now Deckled Overreed, uh, was playing up top for Bristol City in their friendlies and looking quite good. And that was quite interesting, but maybe it was just a pre-season quirk. He went and scored 19 goals in the league that year up top for Bristol City. This change happened when he was 24 as well, so it's not like he was you know, just coming through. He'd scored five in 48 games in the previous two seasons and then scored 19 in 46 and then had that slightly bizarre move to Neil Warnock's Cardiff when they got promoted to the Premier League despite evidently not fitting any part of that Cardiff side, which pretty much anyone could have told you at the time. So I'm delighted that he's thriving again uh, in this Fulham side. And as you say, Scott Parker seems to like him a lot. I've completely lost grip on what position he plays, um, but that makes him pretty perfect for this team. And then, Michael, if we hadn't had the big man up top, Kalajic, we probably would have had Mikel Antonio, West Ham striker. We've spoken a lot about over the last few weeks, but in Premier League terms, he's a real standout in this position. Yeah, well, I think Kalajic was linked with West Ham. Um, so maybe they'll be challenging one another for real, for the centre-forward spot. But yeah, I mean, Antonio's a weird one because he... I mean, he's been around for quite a long time now, hasn't he? But, you know, at West Ham. And I remember very typically he was the only new call-up when Sam Allardyce named his first ever England squad, um, which is very on-brand. But yeah, I mean, he he was a kind of right-back, a right-wing-back, a right-side midfielder, then went up front almost like as an afterthought. But actually, he's got great pace and he's great in the air. So... He's just a really good all-round centre-forward. I mean, how many strikers really are as quick as him and as good in the air as him? I'd probably say Calvert-Lewin off the top of my head in the Premier League. Probably not many others. So he feels unusual because he used to be in a completely different position. But actually, I think he probably has exactly the right skill set for his position, doesn't he? All five of these players born in the EFL. Interesting. Maybe it speaks to the sort of (laughs) sacrifices these guys have to make because they don't have it handed to them from a young age in these elite academies. But, I mean, the old cliche definitely applies here that if you're a centre-back and you've been 
you've been used as a rag doll by big Sasha Kalajic and then the board goes up and on trots Mikel Antonio uh, with all the qualities he had uh, you wouldn't be that keen on that would you um, guys what a treat to run through quite unique FC um, with you Tom not only have you enjoyed this podcast but you've also got a model to spend the rest of your life with which is quite a nice touch um, wh- what do you feel what's your gut telling you about quite unique FC because I know from a scouting perspective you've got some concerns that we've got a bit overexcited about some overperformers of their underlying numbers. Um, generally, do you think we've achieved a, a, both a team full of unicorns, but one that could actually play cohesive football? Yeah, I think so. I think that we, we've probably got the most, um, or one of the most cerebral tactical managers ever who's going to work out how to put this this puzzle together. Um so I think we're we're helped by that, but I think it's been a, a really interesting exercise in terms of thinking about how we how we actually label players as unique and how we think of them as, as unique, and also um, just yeah the blend of you know the way that Coxie watches the games and, and thinks about them, and the way that I kind of use the stats um, to to tease that out as well. So um, yeah, I'm uh, I'm I'm not concerned about how this hypothetical football team gets on. I think they'll be fine. As I said, I'm, I'd be very excited about how good this side could be out of possession. I think we've got a really good uh, blend in that sense. I'm a little concerned, Michael, I have to admit, and I know you don't care because this team won't play any actual matches, but I'm not sure that... I'm not sure we've really picked the right players to get the, the best out of Big Sasha, but I do I do accept that in Llorente and DePaul, McKenney and even Casemiro, if not potentially Barella, whose goal-scoring numbers aren't great, I do, I do think we could have a side... Where it's where we share the goal scoring burden, um, and you can't argue that we'd be a real threat from set pieces as well. I think Rodrigo de Paul would take them, and um, we've clearly got some great height there. So both offensively and defensively, uh, I'm pretty excited about dead ball situations for quite unique FC. Uh, but this was your idea, Michael. Um, I might have picked it up and run with it to places that you weren't comfortable with. But I hope you've enjoyed the exercise at the very least. No, I very much enjoyed it, and I've been pleasantly surprised at how. Seriously, you took the tactical <laughs> side of things. I was just picking players that would roughly work in an 11, but you were really thinking about, you know, how we're going to match up with the opposition for the first game of the campaign. So whenever that fixture is, bring it on. The good thing is, I think I know our listener base better than you do, and specifically <laughs> what they like and what they're interested in. And I think that when a certain percentage of people listening to this heard this, they would have tried to put together a team themselves that would make at least some sense as a football team. So if you have done that, please do let us know. On Twitter is probably the best way to get in contact with us. It would be great to see a couple of teams tweeted full of unicorns from across the world of football. They don't have to be from the European top five leagues. That was just a helpful thing for us to narrow down our own parameters. But really enjoyed putting together this side. If you're interested in it, as I say, please do get in touch with it. Make sure you're subscribed to this. We'll be back again next week. Um, But thank you so much for listening. This has been the Zonal Marking Podcast brought to you by The Athletic. The Athletic.